Hi everyone and welcome to the Value SaaS podcast. The show where we talk to people from around the B2B SaaS world about their experience building capital efficient businesses. In this episode, I spoke to Kalyan Varma, co-founder and CEO of AlmaBase, which builds itself as the world's most loved alumni management software. Now in layman's terms, what AlmaBase does is create tools that educational institutes like universities and high schools use to form meaningful connections with their alums and perhaps more importantly raise funds from their alums. Now in this session, I spoke to Kalyan about a wide variety of topics and honestly I struggled a little bit with creating this intro because I, I really couldn't decide what to focus on in this intro without making it a 10 minute long intro because we touched on so many different topics. We talked about how you can overcome your nervousness while talking to customers, how you can adopt a value-based pricing structure and a whole bunch more. But perhaps most importantly, Kalyan spoke about how you can learn about your customers' needs and then translate those learnings into the way that you run your business. Understanding your customers is a topic that we've touched on in both of our previous episodes. Both of our previous guests have talked about how important it is to know about your customers. But what I think Kalyan does differently is that he actually fleshes out what that looks like in the real world. For some perspective, to learn more about his target customers, Kalyan actually went to colleges around America, stayed in their dorms, and watched their alumni relations folks go about their routines for days on end to learn more about what their day-to-day lives were like, what their problems were, and then use that to make AlmaBase a more useful product for those same alumni relations folks. So if you want to learn some tactics about how you can streamline your customer discovery process, then this episode is for you. But that's enough from me. I'm going to switch over to the actual interview that we had, the actual conversation that we had, and let Kalyan take over. Tell me how you describe AlmaBase to people, because I mean, I struggle with this all the time with my work, where especially older members of my family will ask me what I do. And like, I can't say I work in B2B SaaS because they're going to have no idea what that means. I could try to yeah. describe the product to them, but they're also going to have, I, I try my best to describe what the product is, what the product does to them. They still have no idea what I what I mean, but <laughs> it's a futile, it's a futile effort, but I'd be curious to know how you how you tackle that problem. Yeah, I'll try a new approach this time. So, okay, here's a family member. They're saying, what do you do, man, apart from chilling out and not really doing a job? Um, so here's the thing. Um, remember when you went to college and, uh, you know, you were sort of asking your parents every time you had to pay the fee, you know, depending on what kind of family you're from, you either struggled for it, you know, or maybe you didn't, but you always knew friends who, you know, sort of struggle to make sure that they could pay their tuition fee, right? Imagine if your university could subsidize that education, right? Wouldn't the, how how much happier or how much more accessible that education becomes for everyone, right? How do they, how can they actually subsidize this? How can they actually say, okay, it's going to cost me $100,000 per student to provide a great quality of education, you know, with all of the facilities, the great professors, amazing athletics facilities, et cetera. But I'm, if I charge $100,000 to every student to sort of compensate for that cost, then very, very few people in the world can actually afford it, right? So then I decide that I'm going to only charge $50,000 to every student because then more people can access it. Where do I get the rest $50,000? Right. That's where, you know, uh, generosity plays a key role because you can then go raise money from other people, most likely your own alumni 
to sort of help continue this cause and a lot and in a lot of those cases because this is a virtuous cycle students benefit from the generosity of others and then when they have the capacity to do so right they can actually benefit current students by donating right and those donations actually subsidize the education for current students so basically where alma base comes in is we essentially help each university get more of their alumni to donate and therefore make education more accessible for everyone yeah that's a that's an amazing pitch what strikes me about it is that unlike a lot of other b2b saas companies this it almost sounds like alma base has a altruistic goal in mind i mean like tapping into people's generosity to make education more accessible when you think of b2b saas that's not the first thing that comes to your mind yeah funnily we didn't start the company the in in some senses the mission so, so even today the mission of alma base is to make education more accessible like i said but the mission actually was what happened to us first and then the idea of the company started so back in uh, 2007 or so when i was a couple of years before i was graduating from college the situation happened where uh, you know few students were having to drop out of college uh because they because college had increased fee and you know some of the students couldn't afford it anymore and when that happened you know a friend of mine and i we were sitting together and sort of saying hey man this doesn't make any sense at all because it's so hard to get into this college in the first place and then all of these people completed i mean spent a couple of years already right and now they're having to drop out only because they couldn't you know afford the tuition right now does not make sense right so how do we actually solve this how can we actually make our own universities education more accessible to everyone right it's sort of really where this thought even started and at that point obviously we didn't think of this as like a large idea or b2b saas in any way i'm i'm sure i didn't even know the word saas at that point uh but then we we at, at that point what we did was we created a non-profit foundation the only job of that foundation was to essentially reach out to alumni of nit warangal which is where i went to uh, college and raise money to be able to fund scholarships for students and then when those students graduated um and got their full time jobs they would pay back a certain portion of their monthly salary back to the foundation which you know you could i mean the donor the original donor could choose to take that money back but in most cases they would actually just fund another scholarship right so this is this virtuous circle where you know more students were getting scholarships they they all were graduating getting great jobs and more donations would come in so you know more and more scholarships were were being awarded every year but yeah it's interesting that that what we thought was a small idea for nit warangal sort of then eventually you know several years down the line has become a saas company so you know yeah but the mission continues to be the same okay so a couple of questions over there first just to get it out of the way loved your initial pitch you said that alma base's mission is to make education more accessible and the way you do that is by helping universities increase their alumni donations what how do you inc- mm-hmm. increase alumni donations sure let me ask you a question uh which university did you go to i went to bowden college Okay and uh, have you ever donated to Borden College? Never, not once. I get their emails all the time. I've never yeah. once donated. Got it. So that's exactly where the problem lies. A lot of the alumni programs across the country 
are focused on just sending emails to alumni where the the CTA because we are both in, uh, we both understand marketing the call to action is always click here to donate right but when you think about it from an alumni perspective the alumni is like hey i've already paid my tuition right i've already graduated you've given me my education why should i donate right i mean if i do have a thousand dollars you know i i have a thousand places where i can put that money to use right so that's where alma base comes in uh, we essentially flip that equation and we say how can universities provide more value to alumni right how can universities be resourceful to their alumni even after they've graduated as opposed to ending the relationship after a student graduates your graduation event cannot be the end of the relationship with the university if it is then the university shouldn't expect money from you right so with alma base what happens without getting into too much detail of the product is for example one of the things that alma base enables a university to do is create a private network for all of your alumni where you know each alum now has access to several hundreds or thousands of you know other people with similar affinities you know especially when it comes to the college they went to to be able to seek help it could be professional it could be personal it could be you know hey i am supplying this material do you want to buy it hey i am starting a company do you want to buy my product it could be various things right it could be even people finding jobs from other people within the network right so that's one of the sort of the pieces of what alma base does which is you know how do you create a private network for all of your alumni so that your alumni now have a continued use of a resource that nobody else in the world can do except you as a university right similarly uh we provide the tools for universities to create content that is very very curated to your alumni uh for example imagine you got an email from the university which featured the story of someone who went to school with you maybe your classmate right who's now doing something phenomenal something inspirational imagine you get an email like that from your university right that's what sparks a sense of connection back to your alma mater more than an email that says hey here's the link to donate right so the you know again i don't want to get into too much of the details of the product but we provide every university or high school with all of the tools that they need to be able to you know create that sense of connection for each alum and make them feel like the university or the school is continuing to be a valuable resource in their lives right and with that what happens naturally is that more and more alumni feel connected and therefore feel like donating so every school that uses alma base eventually sees an uptick in the number of alumni that donate so does that help absolutely does um i mean i think the to focus on the feature you talked about where you have access to this network I feel like it's a bit of a cliche in universities today where we talk about how I mean you're really going to the university in a lot of ways I mean the education is obviously very important but you're often going to the university for the network and essentially what you're doing is giving that network like a an actual material form where you can easily access it on your computer um yeah which is pretty in my opinion at the very least a pretty awesome value proposition i kind of wish my university had something like that if you know anyone from bowden college is listening to this they should 100% get on the get on board the alma base train maybe i'll donate then <laughs> uh, but i want to backtrack a little bit um to what you said a little bit earlier now that we understand what alma base does you mentioned that initially you didn't think of this idea of 
of soliciting donations from alumni to fund students as a particularly big idea. You didn't think of it as a SaaS idea. I'd be curious to know how that transition happened, what the impetus was, what kind of pushed you guys to to transition from running this non-profit foundation that you didn't think had any scope outside of your your own university to being a SaaS product that you now run full-time? I think there's two phases of this transition, one of which I think was very um, intentional. The other was pure fortune, but I'll explain that, right? So firstly, what happened is as we were doing this at NIT Varangal, even after graduation, you know, during the weekends, we were, we were continuing to run this foundation because we were so passionate and related so uh, deeply to the cause. Um, while we were doing that, what happened is other colleges like NIT Warangal um, also had similar challenges and they were either students or alumni reaching out to us saying, hey, like we loved what you guys did at NIT Warangal. We want to do something like that at whatever XYZ college. Can you help us out? Right. And every month, every quarter, we'd see more and more people reaching out to us. And we were like, this is a real problem, right? Like every institution seems to have this problem. So the first thought was just like, hey, how do we just sort of open source in some sense? Sorry, I'm speaking engineer language here, but yeah, basically just put everything out there. So everybody can, you know, whoever wants to do this can do this easily. But what we realized also was that, again, uh, coming from an engineering background, we actually built a bunch of hacks or like, you know, little software tools that, for example, sat on top of Facebook or sat on top of Twitter, et cetera, to either find the right people to contact or uh, be able to track alumni of a certain institution, et cetera, because that was our need, right? We were trying to figure out how do we reach out to more alumni at NIT Warangal and started building all of these hacks. But then we realized that this technology actually makes the whole job a lot more efficient. Um, so that's when we realized, I guess those are some insights that led us to sort of thinking, hey, can we just like put together everything we've built so far and like package it properly and, you know, sell it like a software to every college who needs this so that it just becomes way easier for them to do this than sort of bootstrapping from, from the beginning. That's how we ended up starting the company or at least thinking of this as a company in the first place. Um, that's how AlmaBase was born in 2014 with, with Sri and I uh, doing all of the initial coding and you know launching it with a few colleges, etc. Funnily, um, we did that for a, for a few years, about three years or so, um, at which point we realized that um, it wasn't going to be as successful in India beyond the top few colleges. You know, it was ending up being successful only at institutions who could deploy the resources or the people to be able to run this properly, right? Like a proper alumni engagement program. And there were hardly, I could probably say less than 50 institutions in the whole country who actually had people to run an alumni program, right? So that's when we hit a wall. And fortunately, um, while we thought everybody in the US had already figured out alumni relations, uh, fortunately, a lot of people started reaching out to us around that year. Um, this was 26, late 2016, early 2017. Um, a lot of people started reaching out from the US using our website and saying, hey, can you tell us how you guys can help our alumni engagement program and increase alumni donations, et cetera. So that was the fortunate part because obviously when we started AlmaBase as well, it wasn't even in our wildest dreams to sort of say, we'll go become the number one alumni management software in the US. 
right? We were just thinking Indian colleges, everybody has this need. Let's sell it whatever number of lakhs per year per college. And then we <laughs> created beautiful spreadsheets to figure out how we'll become a large company. None of that happened, but it was fortunate that there was a massive need uh, in the US as well. And that's how we grew from there. I love the created, created beautiful spreadsheets that didn't end up working out. I feel like that's a almost a rite of passage. <laughs> now, when you guys moved to the US out of curiosity, this is something we've talked about in both our previous episodes, I think. This issue of selling to someone who comes from a completely different cultural and professional context than yourself. How do you bridge that gap? Or put differently, when we spoke to Rajan, he talked about thinking from a thinking using your problem brain instead of your solution brain. How did you relate to your new target customer in the US? How did you understand what problem they had? So we did a few things. Um, some of these are in, in a sense sort of nerve-wracking, but we did a few things. Firstly, uh, we I think the relatively easier one was basically I created a dummy email ID for myself. I won't name it because who knows who's listening to this. Um, I created a dummy email ID and I said, I am a student at uh, San Jose State University. I am I want to become I want to pursue a full-time career in alumni relations because I find it fascinating that you know there's a job that helps connect people. Um, and then so basically with that, I just emailed and called um, every alumni relations director that I could find in the country. Right. Um, anybody that I could uh, find information of, um, I would just email them, call them and say, Hey, I'm a student. Tell me more about your job because I want to know what this job is about in real before I get into it. Right. And that gave me a ton of insights, right? Because that then, because imagine the other person, I mean, imagine the being the person on the other side of this conversation where you're like, you already are pursuing a certain career. And then someone's calling you and saying, Hey, I want to be like you. Right. And I'm just graduating. Can you tell me more? And there is no inhibition there. Right. Unlike a typical sort of customer discovery conversation or whatever. Right. You're not boxing yourself to something specific. They don't even know who you are. Right. You're just a student. So they're obviously talking about, Hey, here's what I do day to day. Here are my, here's the fun part. Here's the not so fun part. Here are my biggest problems. Here's what sucks about my job, everything, right? So that led to a ton of insights, which we then, you know, obviously uh, found uh, ways to translate into our product. That that was one thing. But another thing that we did, um, which was actually quite intimidating, to be honest, is we ended up taking a booth uh, at any conferences that, you know, uh, we did that for about four or five conferences in the first few months where we would have alumni relations and fundraising people at from universities and schools attend those conferences. We would take a booth. We didn't even have a proper sort of established product in the US or anything like that. We would just take a booth and anybody that would walk by would basically say, hey, would love to know, you know, what are your biggest challenges? What are you doing today? You know, why aren't you able to get more alumni to donate? Things like that, right? <sighs> that was intimidating because that con- those conferences typically had, let's say, a thousand people, right? And 90% white, right? And then there would be these two brown dudes, me and my (laughs) co-founder. It was super awkward to be in those conferences because everybody would be walking by the booth and saying, who the hell are these guys, right? Like 
we would look like kids and we would look very different from them and it was super intimidating to even start conversations with them um especially with our backgrounds also coming from engineering backgrounds where you know typically like hey i don't want to get up from my screen i just want to keep coding all life all my life kind of uh, people to being in those conferences and having conversations with them was super intimidating but also super insightful right um yeah and then after we started getting a few customers then i spent a lot more time um visiting these customers uh staying in the university dorm um spending time at the office did a bunch of stuff like that but yeah i'll i'll, I'll take a pause there couple of follow up questions one mm-hmm. i can totally see how it would be intimidating to go to those conferences starting conversations with people is surprisingly hard it's surprisingly yeah. hard like how how do you there's no non awkward way to do it you just kind of have to go for it and i'd be curious to know did how did you how did you get over that initial apprehension that initial fear is it just a sort of thing where you just have to go for it or yeah. did you do something that's, that's, to like prepare yourself for the conference because i imagine there are a lot of founders out there who face similar problems yeah i'd say um be a good actor in those places basically just watch what the other person is doing next to your booth and just try and emulate um or imitate so yeah i was just trying to basically look at what everybody else was doing and trying to do as much of it as possible um yeah so <laughs> i i had this friend um i mean now a friend but back then just another vendor at a different booth he was phenomenal at you know sort of bringing people to the booth with very little money i would say like there are people who give very expensive gifts at their booths to draw people in but this guy would just like if he's not getting enough people in the booth he would just walk out get a 20 dollar starbucks gift card and then stand in the middle of the hall and say hey the next 10 people that talk to me one of you will win this you know starbucks gift card and then 10 people would immediately line up right so it's just like things like that that you know obviously i i just still don't have the courage to be able to do something like that but yeah a uh, point being uh, copying what other people are doing i think is a good way to get over your fear because once you do a few of these then you kind of get used to um get kind of get used to that honestly this is like but this is hardcore social science research man like your <laughs> even just like watching your your friend from this other booth like go about his craft that's just participant observation right there you're essentially doing an ethnography of how people how people sell and it's pretty insane honestly like i like i i recently graduated from a uh, i did my degree in social science research and one of our one of our um assignments to to learn participant observation was exactly this we had to find a place on campus and observe people observe people going about their day and take notes on it and very similar experience of seeing people i chose a spot on campus where people often hand out flyers on ucla's campus uh, and you could see the different tactics people use to get their flyers out to as many students as possible very similar situation that people who like stand on the side and are a little bit timid and they're like do you want a flyer and no one ever takes them and then there's the people who like they don't give they don't care what people yeah. think about them they're like oh we you'll get a free unicorn if you take a if you take one of my flyers they uh-huh. scream outlandish stuff but it works and people people take the flyers i um, honestly love those uh, sorry if this is a bit of a deviation i love those people who um, you know who who can sell something like that right yeah. because the amount of rejection that you face i think is actually directly proportional to how good a sales person you'll end up becoming 
right and uh, selling some of this stuff um even like green peace for example right you would have all of those volunteers walking by the street and you know just stopping any stranger and 99 out of 100 people will basically say hey don't even talk to me right, right. um so yeah really hardcore stuff and i really respect all of those people who are able to do jobs like that and still keep going after those 99 rejections Yeah I mean I heard this on another podcast I don't remember which podcast it was but they were referencing someone someone else something someone else had said so this is like a a third hand quote but <laughs> good sales people eat no for breakfast <laughs> oh, what's also interesting about sales now that we're on that topic is um, you know again I was a hardcore programmer I would sit in front of my computer from 9 a.m to 9 p.m just coding right from there i went ended up being becoming a sales person and during that transition one of the things that i would say a very very common misconception for other founders as well is that a lot of people think sales is this flashy you need to have this personality you need to be very outgoing and all of that none of that is true right what i've understood over the years um you know selling alma base and watching other people sell their software products even more specifically is you just need to understand you need to be very clear about what is the customer's problem and how are you going to help solve that problem and what does that give them right as long as you're very clear about that you don't need to sort of be that typical what hollywood movies show as uh, you know sales people uh, i think it's a very important learning for founders because especially from india a lot of founders are hesitating in sort of going out and making the sale and often i see people sort of hiring these flashy sales people from the us without having sold to 10 customers themselves because they're like i'm not a sales person i'm an engineer right but actually yeah i think that misconception needs to be addressed interesting that's something i would have never got onto as someone who avoids sales at all costs um but yeah i like the i like the framework of sell to 10 customers yourself first before you consider um hiring someone for it because it gives you i mean at the end of the day if you're a founder you need to know what's going on in your company it gives you like an intimate understanding of what that process looks like which is a pretty key process in uh running a saas company now exactly and uh, you know even even when things don't work which usually they don't as per your expectation you need to know whether it is a process issue is it a person issue is it a product fit issue is it a sales issue unless you've done it right you bring on this new person sales is not happening now what right? right have you actually hired the wrong person or do you have the wrong pitch or do you have the wrong product for the problem are you talking to the wrong person at the customers and you don't know any of that so right. that's why it's super important for every saas founder to to get customers in the in the door um and understand what it takes to bring more customers on board before going and hiring professional sales people this is a question i have for all saas founders we're completely digressing from my initial plan but i love it because i i mean i think that like the organic conversations always the best ones how do you how do you get those initial customers because every time i talk to a saas founder they're like yeah get get your initial set of customers talk to them see what they say get your initial set of customers like sell to them and then once you have an understanding of your sales process you can hire sales people to take over the process but how do you yeah. get that initial set of customers I always wonder this about SaaS companies because I see them and they're like oh we have an initial set of customers and now we need to grow. Yeah. I think it's a fascinating question and also um I mean it, the answer could vary significantly for uh, or the mechanics of the answer could vary significantly for different SaaS companies but here's here's how I would approach it 
or here's how we've approached it at Alma Base. What we realized when, and I'll talk about the journey of getting the first 10, 15 customers in the US because I think that's most relevant. What we realized is there were already existing companies who were serving sort of the broader university and high school market in, in, in some sort of an alumni relations solution um, to them. So what we ended up doing is picking this really small niche, right? Which the larger players weren't as interested in sort of convincing or, you know, they didn't care as much about it. So we picked this really small niche. What we said is we said any advancement team. And when, when I say advancement, it's sort of alumni relations reports into a department called advancement, right? Any advancement team that's less than 10 people typically calls themselves small shops, right? And that's what we learned from these conferences, right? So we, what we did is to get our first 15 customers, we basically said, the only alumni management software for small shops, right? So we picked this really small niche. We went after them. And when they would compare our software with, let's say, a competitor, we would probably have very similar features, right? And in today's world, there's absolutely no possibility that you have a ton of features that nobody else has, right? Because if you have good ones, everybody else will copy. It's not that hard, right? So then how would we actually make a difference? How would we actually compete against established players with an, with an established brand? What we said is basically, look, we have some we have some features, they have some features. Eventually, they'll all sort of add up to more or less the same thing. But we're built specifically for you, right? Like th this other software that you're evaluating has UCLA as their customer. Do you think they'll listen to Calvary Chapel Bible College in two years from now or whatever you need? We, we will be here. We will be listening to small shops just like yours we will be building for you, right? So that's why you should pick Alma Base, right? So that that was the initial part of the, uh, you know, customer acquisition process where we picked a niche and we said, we're for you, right? We're the only ones that are only for you, right? So that's why you should buy us, right? That was how we acquired, in fact, not just the first 15, but until 2019 or probably even early 20, yeah, actually until 2019, we retained that positioning of saying, alumni management software for small shops. And that actually got us pretty far along before uh, we had to change it. That's an insight I would have, I would have never known about alum, alumni engagement. I guess it shows the value of doing research into who your target customers are going to conferences and staying in the dorms and things like that. Um, I'd be curious to know, but once you identified that niche, how did you price the problem essentially because at the core of the value SaaS model is having a high value problem like that's where you, that's where you start so once you identify this niche like this is a very specific niche like within alumni engagement you're talking about like a very specific size of team which correlates to a very specific type of institution how did you go about maybe starting let's start with what is the what is the value of that problem um, and then how did you go about figuring that out? Because I imagine for something like alumni engagement, where you're trying to increase, increase the number of donations that alumni get it. I imagine attribution is very hard for like the ROI that people are getting out of your exactly. product. Yeah. Attribution is hard. And also it's a long-term uh, return on investment, right? Like today, if you start to engage alumni more meaningfully, provide more value, you're not going to see significant increase in donations today, right? It's going to be a long-term sort of 
accumulation of that karma in some sense right so yeah so attribution was hard and also the the roi is very long term right so we in terms of how we arrived at pricing i think we made plenty of really basic stupid mistakes before we you know have whatever pricing model we have right now and still trying to iterate so i think that's point number 1 like pricing is as iterative as product is or sales processes or marketing channels are any of these things are iterative pricing model as well is iterative right so initially we just started by saying we can't um tie our revenue solely to um you know just the increase in donations because it's going to probably take a few schools a few years to get the, to see that uptick right uh so what we said is hey small alumni communities you know should probably be charged less large alumni communities should probably be charged more that's where we started we just said if you have this many alumni pay this much per year if you have this many alumni pay this much per year that that was the initial model right and then uh that slowly evolved into um sort of like then starting to segregate features for hey what does a small alumni community really care about what does a larger alumni community really care about etc but i think the real breakthrough happened when we realized that we could basically take a portion of this revenue as like fixed annual subscription but also a portion of this revenue tied to every donation that's processed through the platform right so then what that did what that did is it helped our customer it helped us explain to our customers that we align with the eventual outcome which is that if we help you get more donations through the platform we charge you more and if you are unable to do that we charge you less right so the value is aligned right you make more money we make more money right um today's model is a reasonably complex sort of model with um you know a free tier where you can do really basic sort of programming um i mean I, again it's a bit of a jargon but ba- very basic alumni programs right and then there's more complex tiers with each having a different sort of cut on the donation or different annual subscription and things like that but the way we think about it is i think what is most translatable to other people which is how do you know what is the value of increased alumni donations for a university right what we realized is irrespective of the size of the university different alumni programs are at different levels of maturity right so you've got the really sort of nascent alumni programs which is hey i have a database of 10000 people tell me what i need to do right and then you've got the slightly more mature alumni programs which are like hey i've got 5000 alumni i do 10 events a year um you know i've got this many people donating right now i want to grow that now right or then you've got the super complicated for example stanford university has 500 people in their in the advancement team right super complicated everybody has different portfolios everybody is doing really different set of programs and things like that how do you actually help them grow right so what we've done is our pricing aligns with the maturity of the alumni program right so that what happens is over a period of time as each alumni program that starts at a certain tier becomes more mature gets more alumni in the door gets more donations naturally have to sort of upgrade to further tiers because we're also adding more value and then we're extracting more value out of that the common underlying thread that i'm getting out of all of this is that understanding your customer is key like your pricing your sales process even your product at the beginning the way it started out and presumably how it's developed since 
all seems to derive from what your customers do on a day-to-day basis or how they are structuring their processes which is an interesting way of thinking about things because this is something we talked about as i mentioned in the previous episode as well where you want to think you want to think um inductively not deductively where you mm-hmm. you think from a bottom up approach as opposed to a top down approach where you come up with the problem you come up with the solution you identify a problem you come up with the solution and you tell them hey this is the solution by the solution versus taking a more bottom up approach which is you know oh what is your problem what are your what does your daily life look like let me build something let me build my processes let me build my businesses around that um exactly and i think um one one common mistake that a lot of people make especially in the early stages of their company is they come up they start with this really cool technology right they say hey i'm going to do ai for marketers or you know i'm going to build um some really fancy thing uh for sales people etc so you a lot of people start with cool technology and great solutions and then go find a problem that that solution can solve uh which is exactly the wrong approach i think you have to find a particular set of people you have to find their core problems what is their highest value problem right what are they doing today that i mean literally uh, this is uh, this is probably a little bit of a segue but one of the funny questions that um, you know i used to ask all of these people during my uh, research and discovery with with customers with folks in alumni relations was what would get you promoted what would get you fired right that that is the core metric they're tracking right irrespective of like if there's a marketer he would probably get fired for not getting any leads for the next 3 months right uh so that's what he re- he or she really cares about right so i think that's a great way to um you know in my opinion at least i i, I always recommend people this book called the mom's test um again the book is is phenomenal it it breaks down how you can conduct discovery how you can research into uh, you know solving specific pre- people's problems without biasing them with what you already know right um yeah so a lot of these learnings came from um material like that but the mom's test is something that i'd recommend every founder every initial sort of sales person marketer to read yeah it's definitely on my list also can, can you really have a podcast today that's vaguely in the b2b saas space where or vaguely in like business and tech where you don't have a book recommendation it feels like the <laughs> in thing yeah, um a very interesting line of questioning i know we are coming up to the end of our scheduled time but i i have so many more questions um let's keep going i love i love this i love this question about what would get you promoted what would get you fired because i read the i read this pdf document that actually rajan sent me of course called the b2b objectivity trap mm-hmm. where it talks about how people assume that people in people working in b2b are rational business they assume that businesses are rational decision making bodies they make yeah. everything based on pure rationality what is going to increase my roi what is going to increase the number of uh, maximize number of alumni donations i'm going to get but at the end of the day the people who are operating the business are people and people are exactly. irrational and their incentives don't necessarily align with the collective in, uh, incentive so i mean that person who's working in the alumni relations office of a university their personal incentive is to not get fired exactly. and to get a promote get a promotion 
versus exactly. the incentive of the collective is to is to maximize maximize have you heard of the the principal agent problem i have heard of the principal agent problem yeah again oh my god that's a, it's going this whole alumni management way. if this whole alumni management thing does not work out you have a career in social science waiting for you <laughs> yeah man i should have just studied that instead of engineering uh, but yeah like it's it's really interesting how um, you know sort of the motivations of the principal in that sense versus the agents um, sort of could lead to very very different outcomes for the organization as a whole i think that's a really important microeconomics uh, you know concept for everybody to learn do you want to give for our listeners out there who are not familiar with what the principal agent problem is do you want to maybe give us a Yeah, so, I don't know if I'll do a good job of articulating it, but my understanding of it is You've done a pretty good job so far of articulating most things, so I think you'll be fine. <laughs> so my understanding of it is um let's say you have a problem, a principal is someone who owns owns the outcome of that problem versus any so let's consider that a principal is like the owner of a business or a founder of a company. an agent is let's say an employee of the company, right? Like you were talking about just now, right? Like let's say i represent let's say i founded a college right what i care about are probably very different from let's say a person who's working in the alumni relations staff at my college because for them so let's say i i'll i'll give you a very concrete example right so today let's say i do something that helps build uh, a relationship with an alum that's going to lead to a 15 million dollar gift 25 years down the line let's say i mean there's no way to know that but let's say i knew it i uh, typically me as an alumni relations officer would probably still not do it because 25 years from now i'm not even going to be in this chair and i'm not going to get credited for that work right whereas if i'm the owner of that college that's probably what i want right because uh, there is this fascinating story of uh, michael bloomberg right um the mayor the ex mayor of new york obviously founder of bloomberg he went to johns hopkins university right back in i would say 1965 i think he had such a strong sense of connection to his university right that right after he graduated he was by the way he wasn't financially well off at that point right after he graduated the next year when a call for donation came in he donated 5 dollars right because he still wanted to be part of the story right but that strong sense of connection meant that when he became wealthy right obviously made a ton of money today johns hopkins university god has received donations worth 3.5 billion dollars from michael bloomberg right and imagine an alumni relations director sitting back in 1965 thinking how do i care whether i talk to this little michael bloomberg or not right but you know fast forward so many years see what's happened Okay. So <laughs> I guess that's a bit of a deviation, but that's the principal agent problem for me. Not everybody's incentives are aligned. It's a great example to bring it home, because principal agent problem sounds—I mean, it sounds really boring when you hear it. Unless you're a mm-hmm. social science nerd, it sounds extremely boring. Um, but that's a great example to to bring it bring it to the ground. Now, really quick. I as I mean it's late for you so I want to let you go eventually uh though I seriously could keep talking to you about this stuff um I'm curious to know a little bit more about your experience going to actual universities and staying with them in dorms 
what is the what were you looking for when you were uh okay let me like let, let me take a step back so you go to, you go to universities you stay in their dorms you go in and presumably just watch these alumni relations people go about their days doing their yeah, jobs doing I, their tasks uh exactly what was what was the framework you used to observe these people was there any framework were, were you looking out for particular things what was that experience actually just tell me what was that experience like yeah so i think the the honest truth there is that i didn't have any framework i just said i probably read, i mean this is hindsight bias but i probably read a bunch of books that said get as close to your customers as possible and so that's what i did <laughs> literally um but basically what i did is uh, i'll take an example right i went to nickel state university uh, which was one of our early customers back in um, i would say 2018 or so i went to their university i said and where is that where is nickel based uh nickel state is in louisiana okay. um a little town called tibodo um so yeah uh, <laughs> it's a funny story they don't like it's such a small town um, there's no uber there's literally one cab with a single phone number anybody in town basically orders the same cab like literally the same car anyway that story aside i went to nickel state university uh, stayed there for a week right uh, monday through saturday got a room in the dorm um, then i said interestingly there um, so the alumni office is separated in a separate building is located in a separate building one of the seats there was empty i said i'll just sit there and i'll do my work but i wasn't really doing much i was just observing them right and i didn't really have a framework but i just wanted to understand what does their day look like what are they worried about what are they happy about you know what do they really want to do right what understanding their incentives exactly right and the most interesting thing again uh, as an example from that nickel state university story itself is when i sat there for the first time i was thinking these people are going to come in just because there is always bias right i i would go in on a typical day to work i would start looking at emails what are the tasks what do i need to get done today what are my priorities all of that but these people would come in enjoy a cup of coffee then sort of talk about some very specific alumni who happened to be in the news the other day or you know somehow their conversation came up and then eventually sort of get to some of their tasks and things like that my point there being what these people are in that job for is basically to build relationships with specific alumni sit in front of them talk to them learn their story figure out a way to create that sense of connection back to the university whereas i would have imagined without that insight that like you know these people have a bunch of tasks one of those tasks is probably to call 15 alumni a day right but that's not how this works at all right that's not they're not behaving like sales or marketing people right they're actually their behavior is very very different their behavior is like whatever i'm doing right now if an alum actually walks into the office i would basically leave everything show them a tour of the campus like my job is to build relationships one after another right that's an example of the kind of insight that i got um you know while i was sitting there at nickel state um you know but yeah like for any founder out there right um what obviously not everyone selling to universities not everyone can stay at dorms but the closer you can get to customers the clo the clo again sorry i want to take a step back here a lot of the times people do customer discovery research calls but one what ends up happening on those calls is that 
when the other person which is the customer or you know whoever you're researching gets on the call they already have a little bit of a sense of what you do and then no matter how much you try to open up the conversation they're always boxed in that right and they're talking about that whereas if you're basically saying hey you just go about your day right i'm not even going to ask you questions right i'm probably just going to be curious and i'm just going to probably say hey like who was this person who just walked in you know stuff like that right then that gives you the opportunity to actually observe things beyond the scope of what you've already explained to them right which is super critical if you want to really uh, be able to build something that really solves a high value problem going back to what you were saying right so yeah um very long answer to your very short question but yeah that's what happened great answer i honestly this is something again we talk about in social science research which is like in interviews people are primed especially when you are when you frame the interview in a certain way when you tell them you want to talk about something they are yeah they automatically start thinking along that track so it kind of like the interv- the 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 mode of interaction that you have with the customer sort of influences what their answers are going to be and the other thing that i've noticed about interviews in particular when you're interviewing customers is that oftentimes the points of friction or the incentives that they think about every day are unmarked like they don't think much about it yeah. so if you ask them about it they might not even know to bring it up um yeah. versus if you just observe them in which case you actually see those points of friction um like if you ask me what my i mean i'd i'd be able to tell you what stresses me out every day at work but there are probably aspects of my life that could be made considerably easier with software that i would not have i would not be able to articulate to someone if they got on a on a customer discovery call with me totally totally yeah this is a super important exercise for anybody to do get as close as possible to your customers whether you're an engineer whether you're a sales person whether you consider yourself a marketer doesn't matter just sit down with your customers and figure out what they're doing okay last thing and i promise i will let you go it's the mm-hmm. craziest thing that happened when you were staying at these dorms So beyond the awkwardness of being uh, this random brown person like i said um, you know on campus where nobody else was like that um, beyond that i think what's the craziest thing that happened i think that cab service experience was a funny one um, back in that back in that uh, back at that time i didn't know how to drive in the us uh, so i basically took a bus um, i can't remember where from but i took a bus landed in tibodo then i called this person from the alumni relations office because they were already a customer i knew her she came on came in her car picked me up went to the university and i think the shocking thing was just um how different this small town was relative to all the other big cities that i was you know that i that i have ever been to in the us like whenever i've been in the us i've been in let's say new york or san francisco or la or you know one of those places but these small towns have a completely different vibe it's a different country if you ask me right i think that was i don't know if that was the craziest thing but i i think that was the one one of those initial visits was that was the biggest surprise for me how different their lives were you know you could be making 25000 a year right in in a small town like that and have a massive house with a swimming pool in the backyard and spend 5 pm to 9 pm with your kids It's a very different life. I feel that I felt the same thing when I when I went there. 
but yeah thanks for thanks for jumping on this call kalyan I'll, i'll let you go now but super valuable insights definitely actionable stuff i also love the fact that our conversation deviated from the initial plan and we talked about sales processes and things like that but it all was sort of tied together by this common undercurrent of understanding your customers yeah thank you for jumping on Well folks that's a wrap. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Value Says podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you have the opportunity to review our podcast on your podcast playing app, be sure to do that because it helps us reach more people out there. Also before I sign off, keep a lookout for our next episode. It should be dropping in two weeks ish i want to say exactly two weeks but i am notoriously bad at getting my editing done in time so expected in two weeks plus or minus a few days anyways that's it from me have a good one